Romans chapter 1, we'll start reading in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is God's infallible word. Father, we pray today that you would open it up to us. Lord, your word does no good if it's a closed book. Open up the word to our understanding and open up our hearts to embrace it. And teach us, Lord, we desire to be taught by your spirit that we can glorify you and give you thanks and fulfill the reason you created us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we begin a new sermon series, and it's called Putting Sin to Death. And I am really excited about it because I really think it's going to be helpful to you. I think that's going to be helpful in your Christian life. Because really the Bible, if the Bible tells us anything, it tells us that growth and holiness is essential in the Christian life. The Christian life is all about learning how to put sin to death and gain the victory over the sin that comes against you. Romans 8.29 says that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, God's Son. That's God's predestined purpose for every Christian. 1 Peter 2.11 says that we are to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against our souls. Did you know that lusts are waging war against your soul? And you have to learn to fight those lusts and to kill those lusts. 
2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Cleanse yourself from every defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. These are direct New Testament commands that God has given every Christian. We are to fight our lusts. We are to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit. We are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Now, if we're to do all of that, we have to understand what sin is. How can we put sin to death if we don't really understand what it is? And you say, well, Brian, that's a stupid question. I mean, everyone knows what sin is. And when we go door to door and talk to people about the gospel on their porch, sometimes we'll ask them, well, do you understand what sin is? And the kinds of answers we get are, well, I guess that's doing wrong things or doing bad things. And of course, there is an element of truth in that statement, but it's by far not full enough. There is so much more to understand about sin than simply doing bad things. Because in that definition, did you notice that there is no mention of God? You can't commit sin unless God is part of that equation. Unless you're taking God into account, there is no sin. Because God is the one who defines what sin is. Sin is in reference to God, our Creator. And it, by and large, when we talk to people about sin, they're not taking God into account. That's the big idea that you have to get in order to understand all about sin. Now, why would I spend an entire sermon se series on putting sin to death? I want to just give you one, what I think is a very good reason, and that's because sin is deadly. It's deadly. It will kill you if you don't kill it. You say, Brian, what do you mean? Let me show you the main text for our sermon series. It's Romans chapter 8, same book, different chapter. Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. This is the Apostle Paul. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, he talks about living and dying. What does he mean? He's not talking about dying physically, because <clears throat> everybody, no matter who they are in the world, is going to die physically. It wouldn't make any sense. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual and eternal death. Let me paraphrase for you. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must perish and spend eternity under the wrath of God in hell. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live with God in heaven for all eternity, enjoying Him and His glory. Do you sense the gravity of this issue of mortifying sin? The word mortifying means to put to death. When, when I talk about killing sin, it's no light issue, like it, it has no bearing on us. If we don't put sin to death, we will go to hell. You say, well, Brian, do you really believe that? I absolutely believe that. But you say, well, don't you believe that you're a Christian? Don't, aren't you secure in your salvation? Do you think somehow you're going to lose your salvation if you don't put sin to death? I don't believe that. Because in the very same chapter... Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, Paul says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Now, the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God justifies us. That means He declares us righteous in His sight. But this text tells us that the same ones that God justifies, He also, past tense, glorified. In other words, if you are justified, your glorification, that is to be with God in heaven forever, is as good as done. Every person who is justified will end up being glorified. So I don't want you to take away that truth. I don't want you to throw your security in the trash. But I also don't want you to throw away verse 13 from your Bible, which tells you that if you live according to the flesh, you must die. Let those words hit you home and have an impact on you. If I don't put to death the deeds of my body, I'm not going to make it. Now, I'm not going to tell you how I reconcile those two truths today because it would take too long. But we will, in our series, we'll talk about verse 13 and how verse 30 of chapter 8 can be reconciled with verse 13 of chapter 8. They're not at war with each other. They work together in the Christian life. As the, the great Puritan theologian John Owen of the 1600s, wrote a, a, many treatises on the mortification of sin, but he was famous for this statement. He says, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And that is an absolutely true statement. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you will not see the Lord unless you are pursuing holiness? That's the word of God. And we can't brush that off for the sake of, well, I'm secure in Christ. Don't do it. Let, let those words have an impact upon you. And you say, well, Brian, how serious is sin? To us, it's probably not all that serious. For most people, sin is not a serious issue. But let me be very clear to God, sin is a very serious issue. Sin was serious enough for God to destroy the world in the days of Noah. Eight people were saved. Every other person was destroyed from the planet. That's how serious God is about sin. Sin is so serious to God that he incinerated two entire cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, because of sin. And sin is so serious to God that he was willing to send his own son, his beloved one, his only begotten, to an accursed cross to bear the wrath of God and take our curse in order to make an end of sin. That's how serious sin is. And you know what? We are godly only to the extent that we are serious about sin. If sin is a trifle to you or not a big deal or you can slough it off or you don't really care about it, you're not a godly person because godliness is being like God. And if to God sin is serious, then if you are a godly person, you will be serious about the sin in your life too. You will. Now, when I talk about sin, I'm not just talking about actions or even words or even attitudes. What I want to do this morning is to try to go underneath the actions and words and attitudes that are evil and get to the bottom of sin. I want to go to underneath all of that stuff and find out what causes it all, what produces all the evil actions in our life, our thought life, you know, the things we say, the things we do. What's at the bottom of all of that? Um, and you say, well, Brian, why don't you just assume that sin is our actions? Why do you think there's something that's underneath those actions? 
Uh, it's because of Romans 7, verse 8, that I think that. In Romans 7, 8, Paul says, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. He says, sin produced coveting. Now, isn't coveting sin? Coveting is one of the Ten Commandments. Everyone believes and agrees that being covetous is sinful. But this verse tells us that sin produced coveting. Sin produces sin. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? There's something underneath coveting that produces coveting. And the thing that's underneath the coveting is what I want to get at this morning. I want to go to the bottom and find out the source, the roots from which all of our evil actions spring. Because if we can take an axe to the root of the sin that drives the actions, we can find freedom from the dominion and power of sin. So this morning, I want to go with you to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. It's in this place that Paul develops his theology of sin most deeply. Of all of his writings, he spends three chapters on it. From chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, and he probes sin, and he, he helps us understand the depths and the gravity and the depravity of sin. So the first thing we want to notice from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, is that sin suppresses the truth about God. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, which are His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, Notice how he introduces the subject in verse 18. He says, The wrath of God is, that's present tense, is being revealed right now against two things, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Unrighteousness. In 1 John 5, 17, John says, All unrighteousness is sin. So just so that we know that we're on the right track, the Bible tells us unrighteousness is sin. Well, what about ungodliness? What is that? I believe, as I've meditated on this, a good definition of ungodliness would be being unlike God, indifferent to God, or hostile to God. It's anything set in opposition to God. Unlike Him, indifferent to Him, or hostile to Him. And so here we're introduced to these two terms. The wrath of God is currently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what does this ungodliness and unrighteousness of men do, according to verse 18? It says it suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. The word suppress means to hold down. Okay, picture you're the little kid on your block and there's a bully and he comes by every day and picks you up and stuffs you in the trash can and puts the lid on and sits on top and laughs at you. He's suppressing you. <laughs> he won't let you out. He's holding you down. 
these ungodly, unrighteous people are holding the truth down. They won't let it out. They don't like this truth, and so they're holding it down. But exactly what truth are we talking about? Well, we're told that in verse 19 and 20. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and here it comes, because that which is known about God, there's the truth they're suppressing. The truth about God. That which is known about God is evident within them. Why? Because God made it evident to them. Well, how did God make this truth about himself evident to them? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly seen. He made it evident to them. They can see it. They understand it through what has been made so that they're without excuse. They look around at the world and they intuitively know there has to be a God. I see this order and symmetry in the world and beauty and life. Where did that come from? There had to be a creator. You know, if you're an artist... You create works of art, right? If you see a painting, you know there had to be a painter. If you see a building, you know there had to have been a builder. And when people look around at this world and see a creation, hey, there, there had to have been a creator. Don't let people tell you that they're atheists. They may want to claim that they're atheists, but deep down inside, God has made evident to them that there is, that his existence is real. So, God made the truth about himself known to people through creation. And so he ends up this whole situation here in verses 18 through 20 with this phrase, so that they are without excuse. Now, they're not without excuse because they're victims. Remember how Jesus put it in John 3.19? For men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People are not victims of the darkness. What does Jesus say about them? They're lovers of the darkness. That brings about culpability. If I love sin, if I love darkness, now I'm responsible. I'm accountable to God because my heart is bad. My heart is going after wrong things. And so that's why they're without excuse. God has made the truth about himself known to all people through creation. They can look at creation and say, there must be a creator. He's got to have great power. He's got to be invisible because I can't see him, you know, just like Paul says here. And besides that, he's got to be a being with great wisdom, creativity, imagination. I mean, just by looking at the multitude of different species of animals and plants. You know God is a God of creativity and wisdom and all of that. So there's lots of things that normal, ordinary, unsaved people can know about God just by looking around them. So, number one, sin suppresses the truth about God. Number two, sin does not honor or thank God. That's verse 21. For even though they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. The word honor is the Greek word doxazo. It means to glorify. They did not glorify God. They did not thank God. Sin does not honor or thank God. 
So what did people do with this truth about God? Did they bow down and worship God once they realized he had to be there? He had to be their creator? No. They refused to honor God. They refused to thank God. They became futile in their speculations, and their heart became foolish and darkened as they turned away from the true and living God to other things. You see, sin doesn't like to honor or glorify God. Sin doesn't like to thank God. Sin hates the idea of glorifying God. Sin hates the truth about God because it tells him there must be a being who's infinitely worthy, who's deserving of my thanks, who's deserving of my life, and I don't want to give my life or my thanks or my glory to this being. I want to keep it unto myself. So sin does that to people. So sin suppresses the truth about God. Sin doesn't honor or thank God. And the third truth is that sin worships the creature instead of God. Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, notice a word that appears twice in this section. It's the word exchanged. Okay, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And then it comes up again in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That means they didn't like God, and so they gave him away, they bartered him, they gave him up, and brought in something else to fill the void. They didn't like this one, so they brought in something else. The first thing it says, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. So they built idols, statues, forms, and they bowed down and said, this is our God, just like the children of Israel did in the wilderness, where they made a molten calf, and the worship did. Moses is up on the mountain. This has been going on since the beginning of time. But in our day, it's not so much that we bow down to these statues and these actual images of stone, but we've got all kinds of other replacement gods or substitute gods. We've exchanged the true and living God and we brought something else into our life to fill the void. And why do we do that? Look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now what's the lie? What's the lie that we brought in that exchanges the true and living God for this other thing? I believe the lie is that we think this other thing is more glorious than God and is more satisfying than God. We would rather have this, whether it be your TV set or your computer or your smartphone or your job or your lover, or your food, or drugs, or alcohol, or caffeine, or chocolate, or power, or money. We'd rather bring that God in because we want to replace the real God with Him. We, we think it's more glorious and more satisfying to us. 
And we're all guilty of that. Every single one of us in this room are guilty of substitute gods to one extent or another. And holiness is really repenting of the idolatry of these substitute gods and putting the true and living God back in his rightful place in our lives. So notice, I want you to notice how Paul describes God. In verse 23, he describes him as the glory of the incorruptible God. In other words, God is glorious and God is incorruptible. He's immortal. There's no being like him. He never had a beginning. He'll never have an end. And he's glorious. And then in verse 25, he describes him as the one who is blessed forever. So who is God? He's glorious. He's incorruptible. And he's eternally blessed. So God has a, I mean, Paul has a very high view of God. But men have a very low view of God and a high view of the creature because they'd rather have an image of the creature for this incorruptible, glorious, and eternally blessed God. And that's why he says they're fools. Their foolish heart has been darkened. How else can you explain someone exchanging that glorious, incorruptible, blessed God for an image of a snake or a rabbit or something? <laughs> you think... It's insane. Well, it's because their foolish heart has been darkened. They became fools. They believe the lie that this thing over here is better than God. So sin worships the creature rather than worshiping God. Now, let's go to number four. Number four is sin does not approve of acknowledging God. And that comes to us in verse 28. It says that just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. The New King James Version, I think, has a better translation. This is how it goes. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It's all about suppressing the truth about God. They didn't like keeping the knowledge of God within them. They wanted to get rid of it. You see, what this is telling us is that human beings really don't like God. They don't like approve. They don't like to retain uh, the knowledge of God. They don't want God. They, do, they wish that God didn't exist. And it's because they love the creature over God and they love the lie rather than the truth. Now, you might talk to non-Christians and they will tell you, oh, I love God. Well, you say, well, which God do you love? Tell me about the God you love. They're not going to tell you about the God of this book, the true God. They'll tell you about their own God, the one that they have made up in the figment of their imagination, um, who wouldn't hurt a fly, who doesn't judge anyone, who doesn't judge sin, who takes everybody to heaven. That's, that's, that's an idol. That's not the true God. We, we need to come to grips with the true and living God and worship Him for who He is, for His sake. Now, how did God respond when people exchanged Him for the creature or exchanged the truth for a lie? What did God do? Do you think He likes that? The truth comes to us in verse 24, 26, and 28. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. 
Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. Do you hear the phrase it keeps repeating? He gave them over. God gave them over. God goes hands off. It's God no longer restraining man. Do what you want. This is what you want. You can have it. I'm not going to restrain you anymore. I'm going to give up on you. you. You have what you want. This is what you want. Go ahead and have it. Now, verse 26, of course, it's, it's easy to see in the text, is describing homosexuality, right? The women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. The men exchange the natural function of the woman for that which is unnatural. So it's describing what we see in our own day that's been approved and applauded, and the LGBT people have uh, put forth their rights in government and law, and today we have same-sex marriage that has been legalized in all 50 states. What are we saying? We're seeing Romans chapter 1 being lived out before our very eyes. God's wrath is revealed against the United States of America. He's letting us go. And that's why we are going into all this depravity and this degradation. God's given us up. And unless we plead, and God is pleased to respond in mercy and give us a revival here in the United States, we're on our way down and on our way out. And maybe that's why we're not seeing the kind of conversions that people over in Vietnam or other parts of the world are seeing many people coming to Christ and disciples being made. Maybe it's because we're under the wrath of God here in America. We need to pray for our nation more, don't we? And then you notice in verse 28, he says, God gave them over, and then he lists 21 different sins that flow out of God giving them over. We're not going to go and look up every 21 different species of sin, but he does list that in verses 29 to 32. So that's how God responded. How did people respond when God stopped restraining them? Well, they ran headlong into impurity, degrading passions, and a depraved mind. Verse 24 says, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, 26, to degrading passions, verse 28, to a depraved mind. That's how people, that's how human beings responded when God left, let them go. And they're doing now things which are not proper. Now, where does this depraved mind come from? It comes from a nature which wants to worship the creature rather than the creator. Let's, let's go to our original question. What is the root of sin? I think as we just take a look at this passage, we're going to see the root of sin. Sinful actions flow from a sinful nature, and the bottom of that sinful nature is that we don't like God. We don't prefer God. We don't want God. We suppress the truth about God. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship and serve the creature rather than God. We don't approve of retaining a knowledge of God. So we have a deep, compelling preference for other things rather than for God. And that's the root of all these various actions that come out of our life that are evil. We prefer something other than God. 
John Piper has been very helpful to me in this study, and he makes this statement, which I think is very profound. He says, sinning is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all things. Now that just decimates all of us right there. <laughs> but it also enlightens us. It's, it enlightens me. To, wow, that's where all of these issues in my life that are sinful spring from. A heart that's not treasuring God above everything else. Now, let me draw some conclusions from our study in Romans 1. I want to give you one scripture and three or four implications that flow out of what we've learned about the root of sin. So the first one is Romans 3.23. When Paul ends his whole discussion about sin and starts to delve into how God saves us, he tells us in Romans 3.23, which is a very famous scripture, and people use it all the time when they're witnessing, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, all my life, I've thought of that verse. Okay, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that all have sinned and fall short of heaven, right? The glory of God must mean heaven there. It could mean that. Sometimes the glory of God does refer to heaven, but there are other options. And I think because of what we've learned in Romans 1, a better option would be all have sinned and fallen short of giving glory to God. Because it says in Romans chapter 1, these people, um, verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not glorify God or give Him thanks. So all of us have sinned, and the way we sinned is by not glorifying God. In other words, we didn't pursue the glory of God as our highest end and our chief good, as our supreme treasure. That wasn't even in, in the park. We didn't even see that. We we're off over here pursuing our own lusts, our own desires. And that's why he tells us in chapter 1, verse 18, that we suppress the truth about God. We didn't glorify God. We didn't thank God. Verse 23, we exchanged Him for images. We exchanged Him for the lie. And we didn't even approve of retaining His knowledge in our minds anymore. So everybody has sinned because they did not make the aim, the chief end and good of their life to bring glory and honor to God. Now, that has massive implications for the Christian life. And I'm just going to give you four of them to think through this week. The first one is that holiness is not just abstaining from bad things. It's not just saying, okay, I'm going to stop smoking. And I'm going to be holy then because I won't smoke anymore. Or I'm going to stop drinking. I'll stop taking drugs. I'll stop fornicating. I'll stop gossiping. And in place of those things, I'll start doing some good things. Like I'll start going to church. I'll start helping my neighbor. When my neighbor's sick, I'll bring them some chicken noodle soup. <laughs> or if I'm a boss, I'm going to be a good employer. If I'm an employee, I'll be a good employee to my boss. I'll start doing these good things and I'll stop doing these bad things. But the problem with that is that you can do all of that and still not prefer God to other things in your life. Is that possible? Yes, very possible. And so if you still prefer other things to God, even though you've eliminated some bad things and added some good things, you're still 
This root of sin is still producing a life of sin. Even the good things you do are sinful because they're not in reference to Him. You see, in order for it to be a truly good work, it has to be because of your love for God and your faith in God. Just take Him out of the picture and any good thing you do is not really a good work. So you can stop doing bad things and still prefer your TV to God or your computer to God, or your position in the world, or the fame that you've received from something. There's all kinds of substitutes that you can put in there. And you're still not a holy person, even though you've taken out some bad things and put in some good things. A second implication, holiness has more to do with who you love than what you do. If this is true, and I believe it is. If the root of sin is preferring anything other than God, then the root of all real, true, genuine holiness is your love relationship with God. It's your affection for Him, your love for Him, your desire for Him, your willingness to follow Him, your faith in Him. It's all a relationship. You can't divorce holiness from this relationship to God. Impossible. Now, it's not that our actions don't matter. They do. But they need to flow out of this um, vertical relationship between you and your Savior. And if they're not flowing from that, they're worthless in the sight of God. So I want to encourage you this morning and exhort you to seek a deeper, more intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. To make that the main business of your life. Your walk with Him, your faith in Him, your love for Him. Every day, wake in the morning saying, I want to pursue you, Lord. Show me more of yourself today. Help me to walk in your will. It's you and me, Lord. <laughs> A third massive implication, and I thought this was really, really interesting. We should be able to look at any sin in our life and ask the question, what am I preferring over God right now? Right? If the root of sin is preferring something to God, then take any sin in your life, like when you're critical of somebody, or being prideful, or maybe you're boasting about something, or lusting, or maybe it's your sulking, or being impatient, or being irritable, or losing your temper. Take any of one of those things and just ask yourself, okay, what am I preferring to God in this very moment? What, what am I doing? And perhaps if you can identify the thing that you're preferring to God, you can then repent of it at that moment and be delivered from it that very moment. And so I want to challenge you this week, when you have realized that you've committed sin this week, stop. Just go away, be by yourself, and say, Lord, what am I preferring to you? What is it? Show it to me. And then a fourth implication, I think this understanding of sin Ex will explain to us why God says in Romans 3.12, there is none who does good, there's not even one. And you say, wait a minute, Brian. People do lots of good. People all over the world are building hospitals to help people that are suffering. They're building schools to educate them, right? They're reaching out to the poor and feeding the starving and all of those things. And... If you bring up subjects like uh, sex trafficking or abortion or rape or prejudice, 
Some people will become very indignant about that. That makes them mad and angry. The problem is those very same people can be totally indifferent about how God is being belittled in the world every single day all around them. And that's a much greater evil than these human evils over here. We can totally ignore God and be totally indignant about sex trafficking, for say. You don't even have to be a Christian of, of any variety to be totally upset and angry about sex trafficking and want to do something about it. That's why this thing over here that looks good to people is worthless in the sight of God. It's not good to Him. Because God judges good deeds as those which are done for His sake. You see? And that's why only a born-again believer can actually do good works in the sight of God. That's why every other good thing that everybody does cannot merit any value towards their salvation in God's sight. Because at its root, it's tinctured. It's tainted with this root of preferring the creature over the Creator. And so the greatest evil of all is to belittle God, to devalue God, to disbelieve God, to disobey God, and all these things, we dishonoring Him. And that's the issue. It, we, we get confused when we think only on the human plane. We need to always bring it back to the vertical and see these things in relationship to God who made us. So I, I'd like you this week to think deeply about the root of sin and start analyzing your own sin, and find out what you prefer to Him. And then repent. Take it to God. Confess it. Ask Him to forgive you. Be sorry for that sin, that you would put something else above Him in your life. Right? I mean, that, that's evil, to put anything above our Creator in our lives. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I do pray that You would help us this is a tall order, Lord. We realize that we're guilty of so many times preferring other things to you. We pray, Lord, that you would send your spirit into our life to, to check us, show us. Lord, we desire to be accountable. Uh, we, we pray, Lord, that we would have soft hearts, we, we'd be quick to repent. So give us grace, Lord, this week. In Jesus' name, amen.